From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Tis the season for nativity scenes, giant menorahs, and other religious symbols to be prominently displayed in all manner of public places. But is this even allowed? What about the separation of church and state? On today's episode, we're joined by Dan Mack, the director of the ACLU's Program on Religious Freedom and Belief. Dan and his team focus on protecting the separation of church and state, an increasingly uphill battle. We'll talk about why the separation of church and state is so important and some of the tough religious liberty questions before the courts. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out by reading some not-so-fan mail. The ACLU receives a lot of angry letters throughout the year, but they take a special tone around the holidays. So let's read a few of our recent cards, shall we? Let's do it. So there's one. It's a nice, beautiful blue card. And inside it says, Jesus is the reason for the Christmas season. Keep Christ in Christmas. God bless. Another one says, even though you're trying to destroy this nation, even though you don't believe in God, God still loves you. And the last gem has a picture of the baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary on the front. And on the inside, it says, ACLU, you better have Jesus in your lives or it's hell. There is a heaven in hell. Merry Christmas. So, Dan, is the ACLU anti-Christian or anti-God? Absolutely not. Because of the work we do promoting the separation of church and state, which goes all the way back to the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 1920s, there's this misperception, a little too frequently cultivated by our opponents, that we're anti-religion and anti-Christian. And it's just not true. First of all, church-state separation itself is a vital pillar of religious liberty. So as the founders of our nation recognized, that important principle not only protects religious minorities and religious dissenters, from coercion by the state, but it also ensures that faith is not co-opted and corrupted by the government. So promoting the separation of church and state is promoting religion and religious liberty. Now, the other half, the other essential pillar of religious freedom in the Constitution is the protection of religious belief and exercise. And there, too, for nearly a century, we at the ACLU have defended the right to religious practice and expression. We've opposed public school bans on Catholic rosaries and supported students' rights to sing religious songs at after-school talent shows. We fight discriminatory zoning regulations on churches, synagogues, and mosques. And we've also sought exemptions from U.S. military grooming and uniform regulations, not only for religious minorities like Sikhs and Muslims, but also recently we got an accommodation for an Eastern Orthodox Christian airman to wear a beard while serving in the Air Force. So it's just a myth. Well, I want to come back to some of these constitutional questions and some of the examples, but one of the things that's really striking is that this separation of church and state is really under fire at the moment. We had your boss and mine, David Cole, on the show to talk about some of the trends at the Supreme Court. And he said that he thought that this was one area of pessimism, where the courts are really in the process of a 
concerted effort to dismantle the separation of church and state. Can you talk a little bit about this trend and where you think it's coming from? Sure. It's coming from an incredibly conservative Supreme Court, and that is especially true on issues of religious liberty. It often seems as if a majority of the court is embracing some form of religious favoritism. It's outright ignoring religious hostility against minority faiths in certain cases, and it's undermining the basic foundations of the separation of religion and government. And there have been a number of recent cases that illustrate this unfortunate point. But it's not a mistake, right? There is a concerted movement that's been pushing the legal field in this direction for quite some time. Is that right? That's right. And now they have the votes on the court. Well, let's dig in a little bit to this sort of inherent tension within the First Amendment. So as you know, I'm also a First Amendment attorney, and I work on the rights to free speech and free assembly. The First Amendment has lots of different parts. But even within the religious freedom part, there's this two parts. There's the Establishment Clause, which prohibits the government from establishing a state religion or unduly promoting a particular religion. While, as you said earlier, there's also this Free Exercise Clause, which protects individuals' right to carry out their religious beliefs without interference from the government. So often what we see in these religious liberty or religious cases is some sort of tension between the Establishment Clause, restricting government, and the Free Exercise Clause, which promotes individual liberty. And as you said last term at the Supreme Court, there was a case on the Roman cross, and this term there are a couple of cases as well. How do you approach this sort of inherent tension between, on the one hand, the Establishment Clause, and on the other hand, the Free Exercise Clause? So we think they work hand in hand. They are two halves of the same broader concept of religious freedom. So on the one hand, the government shouldn't be standing in the way of religious exercise and should allow it to flourish unless that exercise rises to the level of harming others. And on the other hand, the government shouldn't be taking sides on religious disputes and shouldn't be favoring religion over non-religion generally or one denomination over another. And I think they work together. Now, sometimes they're viewed as intention, but they both promote the same overall goal of religious freedom. Well, one of the questions that often comes up is where do you draw these lines? So, for instance, a colleague recently asked, why is it that a politician can say, God bless America in a speech, but we've seen all sorts of controversies around prayers in legislatures or prayers in public schools? So can you help us untangle those two different examples? Sure. Public officials don't have to check their religious beliefs at the door before they go and do their work. But there is great value in trying to avoid imposing one's faith, especially if one is a public official, on others. So stated another way, it's one thing for people to follow their religious convictions and exercise their faith. It's quite another, though, as the Supreme Court explained in one of the, the seminal school prayer cases back in the 60s, it's quite another to have the majority use the machinery of the state to practice its beliefs. And that's where the problem lies. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? Because I'm thinking of, you know, you walk into some kind of government agency, maybe it's a marriage bureau, 
And we could see an establishment clause problem if, for instance, a supervisor had, you know, required all of the people that work at the agency to wear crosses prominently or to wear T-shirts that say God is my judge, for example, and thereby intimidating potentially LGBT folks looking to get married. While at the same time, if someone said, you know, you're not allowed to wear a hijab or a turban at the marriage bureau, we would see that as a free exercise problem, right? Exactly. So, yes, you have it right. And the real question is, is the government officially aligning itself with one faith or with one religious viewpoint? Well, let's dig in a little bit to some of the cases that are being considered by the courts right now. We've talked on this podcast before about the case in last term where the Supreme Court found that a Roman cross was not a religious symbol. It was used as a memorial for veterans. And the question was, was that a problem because it signified that the state might be endorsing the Christian religion. And the Supreme Court, in some ways bafflingly, found that a cross, in some cases, is not a religious symbol, right? Yeah, or at least takes on additional significance. And this term, the court is also considering a a religious liberty case in Espinoza v. Montana, where they're considering what's called the no-aid provision of the Montana state constitution, which essentially says that the state of Montana cannot provide any aid to religious institutions. And this is sort of emblematic of a whole genre of religious liberty cases, which involve government programs deciding whether they can fund religious institutions and whether the decision not to fund religious schools is actually discrimination on the basis of religion. Can you talk about this genre of cases where the government is deciding how it can do its funding? Sure. These cases involve challenges to state decisions not to fund religious activities. And Montana, in the Espinoza case, has a no-aid provision that is similar to provisions that about three-quarters of the states around the country have. And they are stronger than the federal establishment clause. So they provide heightened protection against government-funded religious activity. And so the question in the Espinoza case is, even though the Montana Constitution bans such funding, can the state still be compelled to pay for religious schooling? I think it's amazing that we're even asking that question, frankly. (laughs) But that's how bad things have gotten with the Supreme Court and religious liberty these days. In the past, the Supreme Court has permitted states to adopt school voucher programs. And this is a type of school voucher program that's going on in Montana. The court has allowed some of those programs that give indirect government aid to religious schools, but it has never suggested that the U.S. Constitution somehow forces states to do so, even when they choose not to. So can you help us understand what's really at stake in this type of case? Why is it so important? On some level, this is quite a technical issue, right? It's some a government funding program deciding on eligibility requirements. But clearly this is very important in terms of the separation of church and state. Can you tell us what's at stake? What happens if the Supreme Court rules against our position? Sure. So the Supreme Court has, for a long time now, recognized that there's play in the joints. That's the phrase they use. Play in the joints between the two parts of the First Amendment that protect religious liberty, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. So 
states can choose to give more robust protections for religious freedom rights than the U.S. Constitution provides. So the court has held, for example, that states can uh, accommodate the free exercise of religion by exempting churches from property taxation. The court has also, on the flip side, allowed states to vindicate important traditional anti-establishment interests, church-state interests, by declining to use public funds for religious endeavors. So they've said that before. And that's precisely what Montana has done in this case, and it's what many states do all the time. And so what's at stake here is the ability of states to continue doing that. Well, there are folks in government and even as far as the White House who seem to want to institute some form of a theocracy, right? They want to completely dismantle the separation of church and state. But you and the ACLU believe that this is a huge problem. What, If our opponents achieve their goal for America, what does it look like? Well, hopefully they won't. <laughs> but we could live in a world, again, where... Religion is not only an important fundamental right, but it becomes one of the only rights, even at the expense of other religious believers or non-believers, and even at the expense of other important constitutional rights like the right of equality. As you mentioned, this Trump administration has been embracing this narrow understanding of religious liberty that really turns this fundamental right on its head and in their view and in the view of many of our opponents, religious freedom is just for a select few. One example of that, one stark example from the administration is the Muslim ban in which the federal government placed severe restrictions on immigration. And it was all in the service of an anti-Muslim agenda that the president announced as early as the campaign trail, and he carried out his promise, and the Supreme Court let him get away with it. Well, it's interesting, because as someone who, I mean, I identify as religious, I just happen not to be Christian. So for me, the separation of church and state is really not so much about making sure that God is de-emphasized or religious expression is disfavored, but as a religious minority, it's very scary, the idea that our government officials will be able to impose their particular religious understanding on us. And of course, this is true not just for religious minorities, but also all sorts of other folks who don't fit into this sort of vision of a very narrow religious mainstream. Exactly. And this is a problem that is raised in the Espinosa case, in the Montana case, as well as a number of the other ones that we identified, this recent trend of favoring religion at the expense of others. And I just want to emphasize here that going back to the nation's founding, those who drafted, ratified, embraced the Constitution, the First Amendment, thought it was crucial to protect freedom of conscience, not only because it protects dissenters, religious minorities, non-believers, but also because it protects religion. Hmm. They were concerned about the corrupting influence of government on religion, and that is made clear throughout our early history. And that's the danger we face here. It's not only that those who do not agree with the majority will be harmed. It is that there's a corrupting influence even on those majority faiths 
that, you know, and you look at the funding case that we're talking about in Montana, the, the founders were very concerned about coerced taxpayer funding of religion. They thought that religious adherents themselves should be the ones to be paying for their faiths. And religion should not have to compete with each other to curry favor with government officials who are handing out the cash. It's a really important point that it's not just about protecting the state from religion. It's also about protecting religion from the state. And it brings to mind the idea that those who might want to see a closer alignment between the church and the state might not have the same feeling if there were different leadership and their own religious practice was being dictated by the government. Exactly. But again, I just want to reiterate that there are many people who object to the government promoting their own faith. So in, in this Montana case, there's a brief filed by the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and, and other Christian groups pointing out the dangers of government funding of religious activities, the dangers even to majority faiths. Of course, there are a lot of minority faith groups that also filed briefs in the Supreme Court pointing out the dangers of a ruling against Montana. But my point here is, in addition to that, there are also majority faith groups, Christian groups, that made the same point. That's really an important point as well. And I wonder if we can turn now to your career and how you came to this work. What first inspired you to get involved in this fight to protect the separation of church and state? I think it may go back to studying about the Scopes trial when I was in school and just being shocked at the idea that scientific fact could be suppressed in the name of religion and the idea that we would shy away from scientific truth simply because it offended the religious views of those in the majority. And I think that's what set me down this path. And of course, the Scopes trial was deciding whether or not evolution could be taught in public schools. Exactly. A fight, by the way, that has not ended, I'm sorry to say. And that's one of the deeply troubling things that I've found in my work over the years, is that there are certain rules that are continuously flouted, even in the face of clear Supreme Court decisions. And I'm thinking now of, of the example of schools while we're sticking with the Scopes situation. We recently filed a case in Tennessee where there was a public school system that had been rampantly violating the law. And when I say that, I mean the clear law. We're not talking about gray area here. Subjecting students to school-sponsored prayer, proselytizing, coaches and other school officials leading and directing prayer, weekly assemblies where prayer requests were solicited by the principal of this public school, posters, Bibles being distributed to fifth graders. And this stuff still goes on all the time. And that's one of the things that I have found most shocking in my work over the years in this area is that it still goes on. Not only are we fighting some of the new fights, we are still fighting many of the old battles. That's an interesting point, too, is I, I have a friend who teases me that the ACLU going after local officials for First Amendment violation is like shooting fish in a barrel. And unfortunately, there are no shortage of examples we see every week, you know, teachers telling students that they shouldn't be atheists, teachers enforcing all sorts of religious codes and rules on their students. 
Let's maybe end with more of a positive note and a victory for your team. I know that we talked briefly about some of the religious accommodations that you have been fighting for. And one of our clients, Sanjit Singh Rathur, just completed Air Force training. And he was the first person to complete the training as a Sikh person wearing a turban and a beard. And shocking to none of us, Nothing horrible happened while he was wearing his turban in basic training, (laughs) and he passed with flying colors, and now he's fully ready to serve in the American Air Force. Can you talk a little bit about some of the victories that you're able to achieve as well, in spite of the overwhelming challenges? Sure, and we've had a number of interactions with various branches of the U.S. military, sticking with the example that you gave. We had a case that went to court after there was some resistance to our request for an accommodation to the military's grooming regulations. And we got a very strong decision a few years back, making it clear that there was just no harm, that folks who have been serving in the military with religious exemptions of these sorts have not caused any problems. There's no threat to morale, to unit cohesion. And many of our clients have been model service members. And so that's a trend that we hope will continue. We're optimistic on that front. And again, there's really no danger. There's no harm that someone's religion is being imposed on someone else. This is an exemption with essentially no negative consequences. And that's the sort of thing that we will continue to fight for, both, again, on behalf of minority faith adherents and majority as well. Well, can you finish by giving our listeners an idea of what can people who believe in the separation of church and state, whether they're religious or not, people who believe in this principle, what can they do? There's a lot that people can do. And I think most importantly, it's speak out, speak out publicly, push back against governments that want to impose one specific religious viewpoint on everyone else. I think it's important for folks to try to explain to others that it's not only, as we've been talking about, not only a way to keep the government from imposing on others, but it is also a way to protect religious liberty and the, and the rights of religious institutions to keep government out of it. And to keep in mind also that the importance of free exercise as well, that this is a two-sided coin here, and both halves work toward the same aim. Folks can reach out to us, of course, at the ACLU when they see violations. But I think it's also important to speak to friends, neighbors, and government officials, and everyone else up and down the chain. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. And more importantly, thank you for all of your vitally important work protecting the separation of church and state. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. To support At Liberty, you can donate at www.aclu.org slash liberty. Till next week, peace. Peace.